All right, starting in verse 21. So, that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brother, brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. I'll confess this. This is a tricky portion of Scripture. And I... And I started realizing that this is a tricky portion of Scripture as I was looking at what other people said about it, and I started realizing that not a lot of people said a lot of stuff about this passage. Or, a lot of people say, look at Colossians, because Paul pretty much says the same thing in Colossians, and then it says, look at Colossians, what Colossians says, and then you look at Colossians to see what Colossians says, and then it says, look at Ephesians to see what Ephesians says. But I think what we can see here is Paul, he is ending this uh, letter the same way that he starts it. And in fact, I think what we are seeing is Paul's heartbeat of how the gospel actually plays out for what he has already written in this letter. How so? Okay, some of you are probably so annoyed at me recapping as much as I have, but I'm hoping that it sticks. Chapters 1 through 3 is all about gospel doctrine. Paul is saying, believe this. This is what God has done. He has come to save you from your sin. You were spiritually dead. But God, being rich in mercy, he sends his only son. God adopts you. He justifies you. He seals you. Paul even expresses that he, what, he's, what he's trying to do in these first three chapters that we know of is that he's trying to explain or teach the mysteries of the gospel to his readers. So, so chapters 1 through 3, as I've said and I'll say for one last time, is Paul saying, believe this. This is the gospel. Believe it. Be changed by it. But then we get to chapters 4 through 6, and, and he transitions because the, the gospel isn't just something that you know intellectually. The, the gospel is something that you, you put on the shoes and you start walking it out. And this is Paul's illustration right away, chapter 4. Walk worthy of the manner of which you have been called. And then throughout chapter 4 and chapter 5, he uses this word walk a lot. Walk this way. Walk in this way. Walk like this. Why? Because when you are transformed by the gospel and you believe it, it reaches your heart and then it extends through your hands. There is a change that happens. There's a transformation that takes place. And where does this take place? This takes place in your heart, but it takes place in the community of the believers. It takes place together. This transformation that Paul has been saying, this peace that occurs with God, takes place in the midst of broken, weary, messy people. Why? Because what God does is he transforms our hearts in the midst of community. 
But we see something, at least in society, constantly taking place. We see something just throughout history that takes place. Is that as people, we often drift into loneliness. Don't we? It doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. You can drift towards loneliness. Why? Well, because our our hearts, they tempt us in different ways to worship different idols. Some of us, we we want power. And so what happens is we enter into communities and and we try to, to, to go into that community with all of this power saying, follow me. And then nobody follows you and you get upset and you leave and you say, fine, I'll just be a trailblazer. I'll be a lone ranger. I'll do it myself. I don't need your help. Some of us desperately want control. And as soon as we can't control people, then we say, forget you. You know good so-and-sos. You don't want what I have to offer? Fine. It's your loss. Others of us are desperate for acceptance. We're desperate for approval. And so we're, we're crippled by that. And we don't enter into communities because we build up this monster of what happens if they don't accept me for who I am? What happens if they don't approve of me? And others of us want comfort. And we've been hurt by people. And so we say, I can't enter into those relationships again because I don't want to get hurt. So it would be better for me to remain by myself because I don't want to be costly again. I've, I've been in relationships before and it's only hurt me. And what happens is over time we end up isolating ourselves. We get lonely. And what did we see last week? We saw last week that we're in a battle. And wouldn't it make sense that the enemy would want us to be on our own? Would want us to be lonely? Would want us to not have people around us? You know, after the service last week, Bill, I was talking with Bill and he brought up a great point. He, he said, you know, Max, um, the shields weren't just in, for the individual purpose. The shield of faith was better used, or these shields in Rome were better used if you were by people because then you could stand next to people and it would create a bigger barrier. So, I mean, really what, what the evil one wants to do, like a lion... He wants to chase you. He wants to cause you to veer off so that way he can get you alone in loneliness and then tempt you to despair, tempt you to shame, tempt you to pride and thinking, I don't need these people. I can do this by myself. Tempt you to say, I, I'm too much of a mess. Nobody would ever want to accept me. Tempt you to shame. Nobody would want to take me for who I am. I've messed up way too much. I have too much sin And yet, what we've been seeing in this letter is that as the gospel transforms you, you enter into a family, and as you enter into a family, what takes place? You start to walk worthy. You start to be sanctified. You start to experience growth. You start to experience the healing nature that the Spirit of God offers. So here, what I'm hoping we see this morning is this. The work of ministry, the work of service, is done better together, filled with prayer. 
The work of ministry is done better together, filled with prayer. And we see this as Paul is finishing this letter. We're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see Paul says we. We say I. And Jesus says all use guys. You see, I grew up close to the UP, and so it just naturally rubs off on you. So we come to our passage, and we see verses 21 and 22, and then 23 and 24 kind of split up pretty neatly. We see Paul is going to be sending somebody, and then we see Paul's final benediction or his final prayer for this church. And so why is Paul sending a person? Why is he sending Tychicus? Well, if we read a few verses before, Paul, he is asking for prayer. The Apostle Paul is asking for prayer. Right Here's this Mount Rushmore figure of Scripture who is humbling himself and saying, Look, I need prayer. I need you to pray for me right now. Why? Because Paul was very aware of his weakness. He was aware that he was a sinner in need of, uh, of people's prayers. He was aware that he was tempted. He was aware that the temptation to, to run from his responsibility was there. And so he asks for prayer, which might leave the people reading this letter thinking to themselves, is Paul okay? What's going on with Paul? And so Paul, he sends his good friend Tychicus. Can I just call him Ty? I'm going to call him Ty. He sends his good friend to let them know and update them. Here's what's been going on with Paul. This is what's been going on. Paul, he's in house arrest. Paul is about to go and give a defense of the gospel to Nero. Now, if you know anything about Nero, Nero was the Roman emperor who was setting Christians on fire as lampposts. So this is who Paul is about to go before and give a defense of the gospel. And so Paul is, is saying, okay, I need your prayers, but, but don't worry about me. I'm going to send Tychicus, I'm going to send Ty, so that way you can know all of the things that have been going on. That you can know more deeply and intimately what's been taking place in this ministry. Ty here shows up in Acts 20. He's a part of Paul's small group of friends. He's, he's a part of, of the close group. Paul, in Acts 20, he, he sends Ty and some of the other disciples uh, ahead of him while him and a few others make a pit stop in Macedonia. We also see that Ty is a close friend of Paul, or, or at least Paul trusts him, because in, 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 T in Timothy, he, he tells Timothy, hey, I'm going to send this guy to you. I'm going to send him to Ephesus to help you or serve you in your ministry. We also know in, in Titus that Paul was going to send Ty to Titus so that way Titus could experience his help. Tychicus shows up both being the letter uh, bearer of Ephesus and Colossians. 
It was an important task to deliver a letter. But it's, it's not just that Paul said, hey, you, you've got quick feet. You can handle the ruggedness of the weather. You can get to these places. He's, he's using him and he's sending him for a specific purpose. Why? Because Paul, he viewed this guy as somebody close. He viewed him as a comrade. He, he viewed him as a good friend, a faithful friend. Look at how Paul speaks of Tychicus. He calls him a beloved brother. What, what, Paul is, what Paul is saying here is, is he's saying, this is somebody who is dear to my heart. This is a close comrade. This is a close friend. This is somebody who I have deep affection and admiration for. But not only is this man a beloved brother, he's also a faithful minister. There's only one other person in Paul's writings that he calls a faithful minister, and that's the church planter of Colossians. So here is a beloved brother and a faithful minister, and what Paul is saying is, I want to give him up for your sake. Now, hang in with me, because if there is a person right now who deserves somebody like that, wouldn't it be the Apostle Paul who is in house arrest, who's about to go to Nero, wouldn't you think it would be okay to say, well, you know what, Paul, no. You keep him because he's a faithful minister, he's an encourager, he's helped you before, and he'll continue to be able to help you. Paul, you deserve a guy like that by your side. But Paul doesn't think that way, does he? He freely gives this man for what? For the benefit and the encouragement of the church. He says, go right ahead. Why? Because Paul, he received service from this man. He received encouragement from this man. He knew that this man was a faithful minister, a beloved brother, and he knew that that Tychicus would do this church well. Paul freely gave him up. We see Paul's sacrificial love and service for the benefit of of another church. We see him saying, yes, go. It would be far better for you to go and be with them to encourage them than to stay here with me. Go. Why? Because Paul, Paul he doesn't see ministry as, as it being just like an eye guy type of thing. He, he doesn't see ministry as, I'm going to be a lone ranger, I'm going out on the frontier, and I'm going to do this by myself. No, Paul had a group of friends. He had a small group of people that were constantly ministering to him while he was ministering to them. He saw the need and the benefit of saying, this is a we thing, this isn't a me thing. We're in this together. We, we're, we're better together. The work of, of the ministry is done not just through the Apostle Paul, but through the service of other people as well. How often in the 21st century do we see ministry, do we see the work of serving others as simply just an I thing? I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to start some type of YouTube page or Facebook page or Twitter page or TikTok thing. I'm going to go out and do this. 
And yet Paul knew that there was a need to do this together. You know, I th- I w- let me try to illustrate it like this. Uh, some of the most successful sports teams, I, what, the most successful sports team that I ever played on was when, when people didn't say, how, how can I be successful? But instead, they, they asked themselves, how can you be successful? And w- when I was a freshman in college, I experienced this to the, to the fullness and what was interesting is that when, when our team asked the question, how can you be successful, we, we actually were successful. We, we almost did everything besides win the national title for our division. But, but what happened the following year, when essentially everybody on the same team came back that following year besides two people, something changed. They started saying, how can I be successful? And we were terrible. We were awful. What happened? We, we went from saying, how, how, can we, how can we be in this together? How can we treat each other? Uh, saying, I want you to be successful. And we flipped that and said, how can I be successful? Uh, Paul, he, he's looking at this church and he's saying, I want you to experience the fullness of Christ so much so that I'm going to give you my best guy. I'm giving you the best of the best to be encouraged. How often as a church do we think like that? How often as a church do we get into small groups of people and, 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 and we tend to then close ourselves off? How often as, as a church do we, do we then get closed off and, and we become a clique and we don't let anybody else in or we don't send anybody else off? How often as a church do we not even take the chance of entering into a small group, a, a community of believers? How often do we let our prides get the best of us? We're here, Paul is, Paul is saying, I'm going to send this guy for your benefit. This is, this is my guy. This is my dude. But I'm going to send him for your encouragement. Why? Because he wants this church to flourish as much as possible. He wants to, as Paul has already prayed before, to experience the fullness of Christ. Paul Paul is saying, how can you be the most successful? How can you experience the fullness of Christ? And he says, I've got to send send my guy to you. Do you look at serving others like that? How how can I help you grow to experience the fullness of Christ? Or, Or do we view it as how can you cause me to experience the fullness of Christ? We, 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 see, we see Paul's n- desire for this church to experience the fullness of Christ by the way that he finishes this letter. Through a benediction, through, through a, a prayer. A benediction is it's a prayer of blessing. So every, every time as we close this service, singing the doxology, it's a, it's a prayer of blessing that we're trying to sing. We're saying, Lord, as we leave here, let us, let us be blessed. And this is what Paul does in this next section. In verses 23 through through 24, he's praying a prayer of blessing over this church. He's he's praying that they would experience specific things. What is it? We see Paul having a two-part prayer here. The first part, he prays for three specific things that we can see. He, He first prays that they would experience peace. Right? This is a theme throughout this letter that we've already seen. The peace of God. 
We see in, in chapter 2 that he's, he's explaining to them that you now have peace with God, and because you have peace with God, now you have peace with one another. So what Paul is doing here, as he's praying for this church, he's, he's saying, I want you, church, to experience a deeper, ongoing peace with God and with one another. That, that despite you being Jews and Gentiles and people of, of different backgrounds who have come from different cults and now you're worshiping the one true God, I want you guys to desperately experience the fullness of God's peace with God and with one another. I don't want you guys to just tolerate one another. I don't want you guys just to be friendly with one another. I want you guys to actually move towards peace. Which, which look, we know that, that moving towards peace can be a very awkward thing, right? Because moving towards peace isn't ignoring sin or ignoring a situation. Moving towards peace means either confessing your sin. It means going out of your way to go up to a person that you may have offended and said, I'm sorry, I sinned against you. Or... It's going up to somebody and saying, you know, I, I think you may have sinned against me or I think you may have sinned against them. That's what pursuing peace looks like. And this is what Paul is calling the church. This is what he's praying for them. And then he, he prays so that they would experience more of God's love. Let me, let me read this for us because we can find this in Ephesians chapter 3. 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul is praying this blessing over the church, saying, I want you to experience and understand the fullness of God's love, the length, the breadth, the height, the depth. Then he moves on to faith, which is closely related to love. And this is why in our passage, Paul says, love with faith. And, and, and we just read, and we see how close these two are related. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Love flows out of our faith of God. Why? Because when we know and understand God, we will want to love one another like Christ has loved us. But not just that. I, I, I don't think that's the only reason why he's praying that their faith would increase. Because we just got done last week seeing how faith is an important part of the armor that we put on. So, so not only is he saying, I'm praying for your faith to increase so that way you may love people more, but I'm praying that your faith would increase so that way when you go into battle, you can put up the shield of faith so that you can withstand the fiery arrows that come your way. The second part of this prayer, then, is that they would understand the endless supply of grace that they have received. Simply here, what Paul is praying for this church is that they would believe that God's grace has covered them. This convicted me this week. 
This made me ask the question, do you truly believe that God's grace has covered your sins? If so, what would... I was like, Max, what would your life look like then if you really believed that God's grace has covered you? Wouldn't you... Wouldn't you pursue this type of community? Wouldn't you pursue this type of small group? Wouldn't you ask the question, how can I serve you so that way you can experience the fullness of Christ? If I truly believed that, that the grace of God has covered me, that his love, which is innumerable, that is, is as vast as the oceans, that I have that I've now am the recipient of God's love, wouldn't that cause me to say, I want to serve you so that way you can experience the fullness of Christ? What would it look like for you to believe that God's grace has fully covered you? We're seeing very, two very important things in this passage. We're seeing first Paul's sacrificial love and service to say, I'm going to give you the best of the best. I want him to go and serve you. This is, this is a, a close and intimate friend. We, I've confessed sin to him. He's confessed sin to me. But I'm going to send him to you so that way he may be an encouragement. And so we see Paul's desire for this church to grow in the fullness of Christ. But then what we're also seeing is his desire through his prayers for this church to grow in the fullness of Christ. I mean, isn't it interesting that out of all the ways that Paul could have blessed this church, he blesses them saying, it would be far better for you to grow in the fullness of Christ than to experience financial prosperity, health prosperity. Not that, not that he probably didn't pray for those things for them, but his main concern is that they would experience more of God, not less of God. And so we're seeing these, these two things come out. We're, we're seeing his desire of saying, how can I serve you? Here is a guy that I can send to help encourage you. And, and how can I serve you? Here is a prayer that I know you need just as I need. We know Paul needs this because he asks for it. He says, pray for me also. So Paul says, we. But oftentimes we say, I. We see that Paul's love is sacrificial. His service is from his love. But this love that Paul has experienced oftentimes is foreign to us. Or oftentimes, we don't think we're worthy of it. Why? I could give you the easy answer and just say it's because our hearts are messed up. <laughs> They're not functioning properly. They're working against us. They work against us because, because of sin. 
They, they work against us because sin makes this love strange to us. It makes this love foreign to us. It makes this, this love that we read about and hear about as if it is a fairy tale, as if it is some type of fantasy, as if it couldn't possibly be real. And as we read Scripture, we're confronted with the reality that this love is real. It's not foreign. It's not strange. But because of our sin, it makes it strange. How so? Because we're used to either people asking the question or we ask ourselves the question, how will this benefit me? Right? Like, okay, let's just be honest for a moment, as if I haven't been honest up to this point. But come on. You may not have ever verbally said to yourself, how will me loving this person or serving this person benefit me? But how often do we actually live that out? How often do we calculate our love or service for people? How often do we ask the question, what will I receive in return if I love or serve this person? What's an example? Here's an example for us. What about somebody who's homeless? and comes up to you and says, do you have any spare change? I'm hungry. What's the, what's the first thing that comes to the mind of a person? Well, that person's probably just going to go spend it on alcohol or drugs. Who's made us judge over that person? What are we doing? We're, we're, we're calculating our efforts. We're, we're saying to ourselves, well, well, just in case if they do go and spend their money on that, I don't want my conscience to have to deal with that. I don't want to be the one who gives them money. But, but, but does, do we read anywhere in Scripture where, where God says, we'll figure out what they're going to use this for and, and then give to them? No, what are we doing? We calculate our love. We calculate our service. We ask ourselves, is this going to benefit me or not benefit me? What about serving? Bringing somebody a meal. Going up to your neighbor and asking them, how can I help you this winter? What prevents us from doing that? Well, well we, we calculate this love. We ask ourselves internally, how is this going to benefit me? It's because our sin. But yet we see Paul love freely. We see Paul serve freely. This, human, this is human nature. This is human nature because we've tainted true love. We've wrecked true service. We've, we've manipulated true community to serve us. We, we think of love and service as a risk-reward. And we do this because we're selfish. You know what we fail to realize? We fail to realize that man's calculated love, our calculated love, meaning all the times that we ask the question, what's my reward for doing this? Is it worth loving this person? It actually points to our just judgment. It points to the just judgment that we do deserve. 
It points to God's wrath that we do deserve. Our selfish love points to our need for a Savior. It points to our need for somebody to love perfectly. It points to our need for uh, somebody who is far greater, far better, far less selfish than we are. So let's not lose hope. Why? We don't have to lose hope because there is somebody who, who empowered Paul who can empower us. And his name is Jesus. Jesus loved perfectly. Jesus served perfectly. Jesus loved perfectly without hesitation. Jesus served perfectly without hesitation. Look at all of the people who came to him who could not bring anything to him, and yet he still served them. Look at all of the people that Jesus served throughout a whole entire day to the point of exhaustion where he healed them. Look at Jesus' model where his disciples say, let's send these people away. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. Why? Because Jesus loved perfectly. He, he served perfectly without hesitation. He wasn't, he wasn't weighing the pros and cons of it. He did it. Why? Because of his love, his perfect love. And here's, here's the reality, going back to, to what we talked about earlier, is, is Jesus knew that his own people would betray him. Jesus knew that the disciples all would scatter and leave his side. Even the one who said, I, I, you know what, Jesus, I'm not going to leave your side no matter what. All it took was a little girl asking him three times, weren't you there with him? All of him scattered, and yet he still loved them. He knew that that was going to be the outcome, and he still decided to love and serve them. Why? So that way they could experience God's love, so that way they could experience God's peace, so that way God could serve them by healing their hearts, by healing their souls. This is what happens when we trust in Jesus. This is, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are able to actually serve in the way that Paul serves. We're actually able to love in the way that Paul does. We're able to experience this love that isn't foreign to us anymore. We know it, we experience it, and then what happens is we want others to experience it. This was, this was Jesus' plea for his disciples. He prays that his disciples would be unified. He prays that, that they would have peace. And, and then what does he do? He says, go out. Go out for what? Go out so that way other people can know about this peace that they can have with God. Serve other people so that way they can know this peace that they can have with God. He, he sent the disciples out so that way others could experience this love. Others could experience this service. Others could experience this peace. Look, there is hope for you today. There is deep, lasting hope. Are you lonely? Come to Christ. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Are you afraid of being let down again? Jesus will not betray you. Are you tired and you need to be served? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve you. You see, we're able to actually live this out because the Holy Spirit makes it possible. We're able to live this out because now we have the love of God poured into our hearts. 
You see, we, we, we are able to, we're able to fight against this lonely nature that creeps up on all of us by doing what? By loving and serving others. So, two points of application before we leave. The first is that, look, we're better together. We're better together. You cannot walk on this journey by yourself. Join a life group. We have a few. If you're in a life group, become more vulnerable and invite people and send people out. We're better together. We're better when we are able to serve people and love people just as Christ does, just as Paul does. You, and I, under, I understand that it can be costly. I understand that it can be intimidating. Please, don't let your pride of thinking that you're too good or your shame thinking that you're not good enough prevent you from being a part of a close group of people where you can serve and be served, that you can pray and be prayed for. Those of you who are already a part of a life group, don't treat it as a surface-level thing. Those of you who are part of a small group of people, change will not happen if you just intellectually uh, talk about Scripture. Change happens as you apply that, as you confess sin, as you keep one another accountable. That's where healing comes from. So don't be satisfied with where you're at. Lean into the Holy Spirit and the power that he has for you all the more. Last point of application is pray. You know, I read recently this book called Outgrowing the Inward Church. The author had a, had a really unique way of looking at the church. He said, and Christians, both. That oftentimes, what we start to do is, is our prayers become inward-focused. They become all about our own needs. They become all about what we want, our own hopes, our own desires. And he wasn't saying it's wrong not to pray for those things, but one of the things that he was saying, and I agree with this, is oftentimes, as Christians, as a church, you get stale, you get stagnant, you start to die, as all you're doing is looking inward instead of outward. Are you looking outward? Are you praying outwardly? This, this prayer that Paul has is an outward prayer for this church. Paul could, Paul could be writing and saying, uh, here is a list of prayers to pray for me, which we should be sending that to people. But instead, what Paul is doing is he's saying, I'm going to pray for you that you would experience the fullness of God. 
I'm going to plead with God on your behalf, whether you want it or not. Who are you praying for in this church to experience more of God? Are you? Should we expect to see a movement of God if we don't even pray for something like that? We should be praying earnestly for one another that we would experience the fullness of Christ. So, pray for your fellow church members. Pray for your fellow church family. If you're in a life group, ask somebody specifically, I will pray for you if you will pray for me. I'll pray specifically for this if you pray specifically for the same thing for me, that we would experience the fullness of God. We're better together. And we should be praying big things, like understanding and comprehending the love of God all the more. Our prayers should be directed outwardly. Let's take Paul's example here at the end of this book. And let's realize that if if Jesus didn't serve alone, if Paul didn't serve alone, then what makes us think in the 21st century that we can serve alone? What makes us think that we shouldn't be praying for one another? to experience the fullness of Christ. We have this divine power at our fingertips. Let's not forget it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy and we thank you for your grace. We thank you that your steadfast love is faithful. Would you help us, Father, as at times pursuing this type of intimacy and community with the body of Christ is is flat out frightening. Forgive us for at times when we let our pride and our shame dictate our obedience to you. We thank you for your marvelous, wonderful grace. Amen.